So my name is Jordan. I am one of the pastors here today and really grateful to uh, have everybody here today to talk about a really important topic, and it's the topic of authority. Now, in my life, I've had different people who have had authority over me. Some of these people use their authority to hurt me. Others used it to bless me. I've told this story before, but when I was in college, I played basketball at Morgan State. And hold your applause. It's not that impressive. Uh, <laughs> In my three years of playing, we were 15 wins and 75 losses. We were the New York Knicks of the college <laughs> basketball. And my coach, uh, I think he felt a daily pressure to lose his job. And as a result, he would just do really petty and uh, just mean things to us. And he would dangle people's scholarships over their heads. He would, he'd cut a couple players. He was just a really nasty dude. And I'll never forget one day, uh, one of the few perks that we did have, he took it away from us. One of the perks that we had was every single day after practice, uh, we would get our laundry done. So we would take off these practice jerseys filled with sweat, throw them in, this, in this, uh, this bin, this big plastic bin. And the next day, the next morning, they would be hung up in our lockers, smelling like Tide, and it was all good. This one specific day, though, we get to the locker room to get ready for practice, and the jerseys are not in the locker room. But they're not in the, the lockers, hung up. We look around, and they were there, left from the day before, in that big, nasty, plastic bin. Now, I don't know everything about physics and chemistry, but I do know that leaving some sweaty jerseys in a plastic bin overnight is not a recipe for good things to happen. And they were absolutely disgusting. They smelled horrible. And me, being the vocal person that I am, I'm like, listen, we ain't putting these jerseys on straight up. If he thinks that I'm going to put this jersey on, he'd he mess with the wrong one. Because I'm telling you right now, I'm not putting this jersey on. <laughs> when I finished my last thug clap, <laughs> one of my teammates looked like he saw a ghost. Another one of my teammates was in the corner like, end it, end it, end it, abort mission, abort mission. And I knew that my coach was behind me. So I panicked and I said, Put the jerseys on, everybody. <laughs> uh, my teammates clown me for the rest of the year, and to this day, on my birthday, they'll just text me, put the jerseys on. <laughs> I was talking really greasy until I came into contact with the authority, the one who actually had the power in the situation, and it humbled me immediately. Now, unfortunately, his authority was used to harm us, to embarrass us to dehumanize us in, in some ways, to punish us. Other situations in my life, I've also come just that, uh, come into close contact with this concept of authority. One of these times happened when I was in high school, and I didn't do it often, but uh, my parents in the auditorium, they'll tell you the truth. Uh, I, cut, I was cutting school one day, driving their car to drive around. It was 1999, times were good. <laughs> we had DMX blasting, stop, drop. Shut them down, open up, shop. <laughs> it was really a fantastic time until I saw my father driving in the opposite direction. I immediately just grabbed the steering wheel 10 and 2. I don't know why that's our first reaction to like, like if he sees I'm a safe driver, maybe he won't see me. I'm, in, I'm invisible now. And uh, he saw me and then did a quick U-turn and basically pulled me over and had... <laughs> Some very brief but very effective words, uh, which basically said, get your behind back to school. 
Uh, he was also using his authority over me, but his authority was not to harm me. It was very direct, and it was for sure an authority in my life, but that was to, to redirect me from going in the wrong direction. In our lives, you and I will have something or someone that is authority for us, that will stop us in our tracks and that will turn us around. Things that we obey, things that we have a good fear of. And the question is, what is that for you in your life? Authority is the ability to define situations and direct the actions or thoughts of others in a desired manner. That's what it is. It's the ability to define situations and direct the actions or thoughts of others in a desired manner. In plain English, authority is what changes the things that you say and turns you around. Now, if I were to ask you what that is in your life, the answer I really want to know is not the intellectual authority, but what is the actual thing that you are looking to to structure your life around? What are you building your life around? What is it that is stopping you, that has the power to stop you dead in your tracks and turn you around? That's what authority is. Now, we're going to turn to a passage of scripture that really is, by all accounts, a phenomenal example of, from Jesus of what it looks like to live our lives under the authority of scripture. And when I say that, um, something inside of me always wants to make sure that we know that Jesus is more than our example. And one thing we talk about Renaissance a lot is that uh, I believe that Jesus is not just our example, but he's also our savior. So he doesn't just tell us what to do, but he also meets us in our failures. But that doesn't negate the fact that if you want to learn what it looks like to have a meaningful life connected to God, we should take our clues directly from the life of Jesus to put them into our own lives. Even if you don't understand them fully, even if you don't know exactly what it is, it's a really good idea to emulate, to take the life of Jesus and to try to live that out in your way as if, if Jesus were living in your life and your time, this is how I would live it. One of the things you'll see about Jesus is this, that though he is a part of the Trinity, equal with God, he lived his life in submission to Scripture. Now, the Scripture comes to us today from uh, Matthew 4, and as I was thinking about reading this today, I, I thought about the concept of Jesus' invitation to us, which is this, come and learn from me. Come and learn from me. Implied in that is you and I don't necessarily know on our own the right way to go. And Jesus challenges us and calls us to learn from him. And here's what we see in his life um, from Matthew 4, verses 1 through 10. It says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Then the tempter approached him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. He answered, It is written, Man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city, had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will give his angels orders concerning you, and they will support you with their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus told him, It is also written, Do not test the Lord your God. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he said to him, I will give you all of these things if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus told him, go away, Satan, for it is written, 
Worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Now, we've used this scripture a number of times at Renaissance, um, and there's so many good things inside of it. But what I want to focus on today is how scripture guided and shaped and was authoritative in Jesus' life. If you read that passage of scripture, that's one thing you'll see that jumps right at you, that scripture, every single time Jesus encounters something, encounters a temptation, he responds with scripture and lets scripture be the authority, the thing that uh, actually guides and directs and shapes his life. Now, we are in the last week of the series on the God who speaks, and quite honestly, we're, we're hoping that the same thing will be true for us, and I'm hoping that the same thing will be true for you, that when you get into life's challenging moments where you have different choices to choose, the thing that would restrain you, the thing that would shape you, the thing that would guide you, isn't your gut reaction. It would be the words of Scripture. The first thing we see in the Scripture is that Scripture was authoritative in Jesus' life over his appetites. So what do we see in the first couple of verses? It talks about Jesus having fasted for 40 days and he was hungry And he was tempted to fulfill a legitimate desire that he had for food in an illegitimate way. That he would do this thing to perform in front of the enemy. Tell these stones to become bread and eat your fill, the enemy says. And uh, there's actually another part of scripture in Hebrews where it tells us what it was like for Jesus to be tempted. So a lot of times we'll think that, of course, Jesus was the son of God. He was the savior of the world. He was a Messiah. This must have been really easy for him to just blab out a scripture. What does it have to do with me? Hebrews 4 and 15 says it like this, For we do not have a high priest who was unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tested in every way, watch these words, as we are, yet without sin. The Bible is telling us that Jesus had appetites and desires just like us, and we're told this not to make light of his response to the temptations, but that he used scripture as authoritative to guide him, not just in Um, what he said, but also in his actions. So Jesus responds in Matthew 4 and 4. He answered, it is written, man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Here's one of the biggest temptations and things that you will face in life. Every one of us has desires. Some of them good, some of them not so good. One of the biggest lies of our culture and of our time is that every craving or desire that you have has to be met. And that's just a dangerous place to be if you believe almost that everything, because I feel it, it has to be something that I quench that thirst with. If you get to that place in life, then you'll start to almost feel entitled to whatever it is that you choose. But what Jesus is saying is that there are some needs and then there are ultimate needs. Clearly here, food is a good thing. Jesus ate a lot. He probably, with the exception of him fasting, he ate every single day. I'm not saying this to say that his desires were bad or that your desires that you have are bad. Many of your desires are really good, but don't feel like just because you have a craving that that desire has to be met. Jesus is saying the ultimate need here is this, Matthew 4, 4, what I really need is that comes from everything that comes from the mouth of God. That was his ultimate need. And essentially he's saying to us that this is our ultimate need as well, that our ultimate need is for our souls to hear the words of God himself to be directed, to be shaped, to be guided by those over and above what we feel from time to time. One of the craziest things about our feelings are that feelings are a horrendous guide to the decision-making processes that you're undertaking. One of the things that I, I, I remember very clearly years ago after my late wife passed away was that I truly remember thinking, 
I will never laugh again. Like, I truly believe this. Like, I will never laugh again. And if you would have asked me to take a lie detector test, I would have passed. Everything inside of me, every feeling inside of me said that there is a heaviness, there is a weight on my entire being right now that will never lift. And I don't know how many months it was, but it just lifted. Our feelings, no matter how strongly we feel them, are a terrible guide for our lives because they change all the time. What scripture says about itself is that God's word is eternal and that all of us are like grass. We blow away, we wither away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. The second thing we see in the scripture is that scripture was authoritative in Jesus' life, not just over his appetites, but also to prove God's faithfulness to him. That in the courtroom of Jesus, his mind and his life, the necessary evidence to prove that God was faithful was God's words, period. It wasn't what happens to me so often, which is I need God's word plus evidence of God's activity in order to believe that God is faithful. So what do we see in these scriptures in verses 5 through 7? We see Jesus going to be tempted, and it says, uh, Then the devil took him to the holy city, had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will give his angels orders concerning you, so that they'll support you with their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus told him, It is also written, Do not test the Lord your God. So the promise here that the enemy is trying to tempt Jesus with is this. Listen, you can jump off the mountain and you won't even stub your toe. Jesus, in his response, tells him, don't test the Lord your God. He needed no further evidence to know that God was reliable, that God was faithful, that God was trustworthy uh, in his life. One of the things that is probably the biggest challenge for a lot of the people I talk to is this thing right here, is that in order for me to believe that God is faithful in my life, Yes, his word is good, but I also need this. What is that for you? What are you waiting for to fully believe that God is faithful, that God is good? What is it about scripture or that God's word that it's not enough? What is it that you're saying and believing about God's character that makes his word deficient? One of the things that I know to be true about me is I've given my word to a lot of things and fallen way short a lot of different times. Um, a couple years ago, my wife and I were going out to dinner with a couple from the church, and uh, the wife was pregnant, and she was about nine months pregnant, and my wife kept on saying, hey, make the dinner reservation for Friday. I said, listen, I'm on it. I got my phone in my hand. I'm on open table. We're making a reservation. Put your phone down. I'm doing it right now. We get to the restaurant that Friday, and the restaurant is packed. The woman, I asked her how she was doing. She was tired. Her feet hurt. She's nine months pregnant. And then uh, the host said, do you have a reservation? and my heart stopped. I forgot to make the reservation, even though I said, listen, don't put your phone down, you don't do it, I'm gonna do it right now. Even though I said that, I didn't do it. Now that's probably a silly example of a, a more deep problem that I have in life. Uh, <laughs> but suffice it to say that if I tell you something, as much as I do try to be a person of integrity and to have my life and my words line up, there's a lot of ways that I fall short in doing that. And if you and I are going to hang out and go to dinner and you ask me to make a reservation, it's not a bad idea to text me to make sure that that reservation has been made. Because you can't just take my word as the end-all be-all. I have fallen. I have failures. I have shortcomings. I'm, short I'm, I'm nearsighted in a lot of ways where I can't see 
what it is that needs to be done in my life, and I overcommit, and I just don't get some things done. But here's what I think we're believing about God when we don't take God for his word. We're believing that God is flawed just like us. Like God's word in and of itself is not good. Like his check is going to bounce. One of the ways that you'll know that this is you is that you can read scripture and be unmoved because in your brain there is still something inside of you that is holding out before you fully feel like you can commit and rest your life on God. I don't know what that is for you, but for me, oftentimes, man, there's so many things I pray for. And there's so many things that I want in my life, and I got a lot of ambitions and goals. And when I don't see that, I, I struggle to feel like God is truly faithful. But it would do us some good to make sure that we realize that the, the separation, the chasm between our brain and our ability to understand things and God's. The biggest problem is that a lot of us are holding God to promises that God never himself made. One of the big promises that I think a lot of us are believing whether or, not, whether or not you admit it, is that God has to give me the version of life that I think I deserve. And as a result, it, it's a challenge when you see other people getting things that you feel you want and that you feel like you're being passed over and it feels like, God, you can't be faithful because I'm not getting the version of life that I want. And what are we doing? We're, we're essentially indicting God's character that God is not faithful. But God is faithful to do everything that God has promised. One of the scriptures that we've gone to before at Renaissance is to say, listen, in this world, you will have trials and tribulations. Bank on it. But be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. God has never promised any of us to take us around the storms of life. He has promised us to go through the storms of life with us, to radically redefine us and our lives and our meaning and give us an ability to actually functionally trust in him so that we can grow to learn that he truly is faithful. So the scripture in Isaiah 55 points our minds in a different direction and lets us know that there's a big gap between our understanding and God's understanding of things and that God himself is faithful. It says, for as heaven is higher than earth, so my ways, God is speaking, so my ways are higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. For just as rain and snow fall from heaven and do not return there without saturating the earth and making it germinate and sprout, and providing seed to sow and food to eat. So my word that comes from my mouth will not return to me empty, but it will accomplish what I please and will prosper in what I send it to do. Lastly, in this passage, we see that in the life of Jesus, Scripture was authoritative, not just over his appetites, not just enough to prove God's faithfulness, but also to determine how and when God's will unfolded in his life. In this last part of the temptation, Jesus is being tempted to take a shortcut to God's will for his life. And it says in verse 8 and, uh, through 10, Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he said to him, I will give you all these things if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus told him, Go away, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve only him. The third time Jesus is tempted, he responds with scripture to determine how and when God's will for his life will take place, that he did not need any shortcuts. Now, if you were to read through Matthew, get to the end of the book in Matthew 28, you see Jesus saying a statement, is, which is, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, essentially saying that the kingdoms, the kingdoms of this world were in fact promised to Jesus. 
But they were promised through the cross, not around it. What the enemy tempts Jesus with is that, listen, if you'll bow down and worship me, you don't even have to go through the cross. Just go ahead and go make that right right here, and I'll give them to you right now. Jesus didn't want to take any shortcuts around whatever God had for his life, including the difficult things, because he trusted in the timing and the how God's will for his life was going to unfold. Now, one of the challenges for us as New Yorkers is we live in this right now generation. And one of the other big lies that we believe is that anything that we need to have, we also need it right now. On Amazon, on Amazon I don't even check anything that's not prime. If it ain't prime, like, <laughs> listen, I don't care if it's a gold bullion for $10. I'm like, well, five to seven days, I'm not waiting that long. <laughs> that Amazon mentality has trickled into our spirituality. When we start to believe that the things that God might rightfully have for us, we need them right now. And as a result, we don't live under the authority of Scripture for our lives. We live under the authority of our impulses, which tell us that we need things and we need them right this second. So Jesus in the Scripture models for us what it looks like to live a life redirecting our minds, our hearts, and our actions to be shaped around Scripture, to let Scripture, more than our impulses, more than our desires, more than our thoughts, uh, shape our lives and direct our path. Now, one of the things that I also know to be true is, having said all of that, uh, I also know that there are real live obstacles that you and I face to truly trust that Scripture is that thing that we can rely on and that thing that we could truly submit our lives to uh, its authority. Last week, one of the things we talked about was just the reliability of Scripture. And so many times, um, people just kind of have a, a, a really bad understanding of the way the Bible was brought together and all these different things. But the Bible is a remarkably reliable book. Remarkably reliable. And one of the things that I would really uh, hope that you guys do, I hope you're downloading our podcasts. If you haven't heard that one, please listen to that um, on the reliability of Scripture. It's one that I think will hopefully equip you uh, if you had doubts or to talk to someone else who does have doubts, because I can't kind of go back and, and talk about all that today, but I, I just want to say that this Bible is, um, despite what that one English professor told you in college, it is remarkably reliable. It's divine, it's clear, and it's good for us. But still, having said that, I know that there's a lot of um, obstacles that we have to truly allowing the Bible to speak into our lives. One of those big things is I think we just really misunderstand the Bible. I've heard this so, many, so often that the Bible just feels like this outdated book with all of these irrelevant things, and why would I let it challenge me or change my course when it just says things that have no connection to me? One of the biggest things that you can do today is to leave with a curiosity to always get the context of scriptures before dismissing it as something that doesn't apply to your life. There's a scripture in Romans 16 and 16, which is case in point. Romans 16 and 16 is something you might have read, and it doesn't make any sense without its context. It just basically says, greet each other with a holy kiss. And to take that quite literally, nobody in here would feel comfortable walking out and someone you just met just to give you a kiss, just to, uh, just to say what's up. Our culture is not a very kissy culture, right? Hugs, 75%. Kisses, zero. Nobody's going to kiss a stranger or feel really warm and welcomed by that. And we have the temptation to hear scriptures like this and say, listen, Romans has no idea what my life is about. He's talking about kissing people. This don't got nothing to do with my life, Papa. Like, you, you out and left. 
you out in left field somewhere. Now, I, I do agree that it's not a good idea to walk up to someone in the lobby and kiss them unless you can catch because you're going to catch some hands. But <laughs> if we knew the context of what Paul was saying, it would radically revolutionize the way you see Scripture. What was Paul saying? Why did he say greet each other with a holy kiss? He's saying this because in a divided culture, he was telling the Christian community, the people who were reconciled to each other, not just vertically, but also horizontally by the cross, he's telling them in a radically divided culture, you should give and show a tangible expression of sibling status, that you are not strangers, you are not just random people collected in a room to listen to a message, you are now family. So... Jew, Gentile, man, woman, social rank, different gender and sex, he tells everyone in a culture that is divided to show the world that you are united. My pastor last week told me a story about his ministry time in South Africa uh, during the apartheid. And he preached a revival there and a number of rugby players uh, who were the biggest thing on campus gave their life to Jesus. And they gave their story to the whole campus, to a lot of people watching in this big, huge rugby stadium that was completely divided. The blacks on this side, the whites on this side. As the captain of the rugby team was telling the story about what Jesus had done in his life, he ends it by saying, and this, this is my brother. Pulls a black man on stage and gives him a big hug. As soon as he did that, the entire stadium broke out in a fight, in a riot. The cops had to come with riot gear on to break up the fight. What was it? It was a scandalous affirmation of the kinship that the gospel had now created. How differently would your little click at Renaissance look if you committed to that? To showing a divided world that we're united. Scripture is not somewhere that is saying random things for no reason, but it does mean to shape and to form our life into being something beautiful. What is the beautiful community of people? What is this beloved community that Martin Luther King and others have talked about? What is it? Is it operating on what we feel and our impulses? Or is it allowing God to shape us into something beautiful, something meaningful? Now, beyond just um, not understanding the full context of something and dismissing it, there are other times where we outright take the opposite conclusion of what Scripture was intending to say. So you can read something that is just really misleading, and it will take you somewhere that Scripture itself never intended to take you. Um, one of the stories I like to tell is that, um, true story, my older brother is in the Basketball Hall of Fame in Springfield, Massachusetts. Honest to God truth, um, in the same building as Magic Johnson, Michael Jordan, Larry Bird, uh, there's no Knicks in the, in the, in the Hall of Fame. Um, Clyde Frazier. Clyde Frazier is in there, right? Earl Monroe. Earl Monroe. There we go. Earl Monroe. All the pro. In the same building as all of these greats who revolutionized the game is Jared Rice. If I were to say that statement and walk up the stage, it would be true, but wildly misleading. It would start to make you think like, yo, this dude must have been nice. Like, he, he must have really been killing in New Rochelle High School for him to make it to the Hall of Fame. The, the, the full context of the story is that when he was a sophomore in high school, they had a Hall of Fame game in Springfield, Massachusetts. His team was one of eight or 16 teams that was invited, and he went to the game, sat on a bench the entire game, and they took a, a team photo of everyone who played, and, he was, and that photo was put in the Hall of Fame. 
to make matters even worse, <laughs> me and uh, Aswan, one of the pastors on staff, we went to the Hall of Fame, and I went to one of the dudes like, yo, do you guys happen to have, because uh, we didn't see it in the Hall of Fame, do you happen to have, because I just don't see it around. I saw Mike, I saw Larry, I don't see Jared Rice. <laughs> do you happen to have this photo from the Hall of Fame game? And he was like, you know what? We got the archives in the basement, and if you want, there's a couple plastic bins you can search through, and I'm sure it's there, because we don't throw anything away. It's still in the building. To say that my brother's in the Hall of Fame is much different than to say my brother's photo from high school is in the archives of the Hall of Fame, <laughs> collecting, high, collecting dust and cobwebs all over it. We don't need just the truth, we need the truth in context. One of the things I really hope that you guys get is a curiosity, again, to, to do some research, to make sure that you are fully understanding what are the contexts of these scriptures that at, some, at first glance might even seem oppressive or, or harmful. One of the things I hear so often is that I can't support the Bible because the Bible supported slavery. They use the Bible to condone slavery, and you're going to tell me about this Bible. I don't want to hear nothing about that. They use the Bible to support slavery. It talks about slavery in the Bible, which is true. Romans 1 and 1 says, Paul, a servant, which is doulos, of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, Romans 1 and 1. And as a result, let's just throw that book out the Bible because Paul is talking about slavery. He's obviously uninformed, and this is a prog problematic approach to life and culture. Is that what it's really talking about, though? Is Paul, 1,500 years before the transatlantic slave trade, saying that I am someone who was taken, beaten, and against my own will, shoved in the bottom of a boat? where half of my other family and friends died, then taken somewhere, with a, put into a new language, and forced into subservient status for 400 years based on the color of my skin. Is that what he's talking about? Absolutely not. What Paul was talking about is something called debt slavery. Essentially, a free man would pledge himself as a bond slave in exchange for paying off the debt that he couldn't pay. What is Paul saying? I had a debt in sin. My life was going in the wrong direction as much as I tried as a Pharisee to do everything that I could do in order to gain God's approval, I still came up way short. But thanks be to God who sent us Jesus Christ, who paid my debt on the cross, and now I'm forever reconciled to God. In exchange for that, man, I vow to always be his servant. I'm gladly his doulos, not because he was beaten into subservience, but to recognize a debt that he could never pay. It's a much different story. Now, we can do that over and over again with a number of scriptures. And actually, this past Wednesday, uh, we, we did a Facebook Live event to uh, hopefully uh, talk about some other topics in scripture that may be confusing or sound off at first uh, glance. And you can go on our Facebook page, and that feed, I think, is still up for you to take a watch and uh, a look at that video. Um, but more than anything, listen, please, please, please commit yourself to never just reading a verse. Don't ever do that. What, what that would lead you to is a, a proof-texted theology where you take a verse and you, you take one verse, you lift it up, and then you build, a, you build a theology around one verse out of context. That's a really dangerous way, and if you do that, it's really going to make you feel like the Bible is not reliable because that approach is definitely not reliable. It would take you 10 or 15 minutes sometimes to read an entire book of the Bible. If something is challenging, read the whole thing. Read the whole thing. Commit to curiosity. To, to investigating. There's a, a, a group of Christians that were called the Bereans that were more honorable because they spent their life truly investigating everything that was said. 
And an honorable thing for us to do to approach Scripture would be to make sure that we're fully getting the context of everything that we're coming into contact with. Now, but even if you had full clarity and fully understood everything in the Bible, there's still something else about us that would resist submitting our lives to the authority of Scripture, something we all love, autonomy. The ability to do, uh, the, the, uh, the power to, uh, or right to act, speak, or think as we want without hindrance or restraint. Nobody can tell me what to do. And that sounds like a beautiful thing if we had it. The truth of the matter is you and I all have limitations and none of us could ever live like that because our goal is to not have no restrictions. Our goal is to really find the right restrictions. I've said it before, but a fish is only free in water. You take that fish out of where it was intended to thrive and it's not going to live. You and I are not free to act, speak, or think as we want without restraint. That would lead our lives to ruin. Even further, you and I only really believe this about us and not other people. We only want ourselves to be able to do what we want, but we truly don't want other people to be able to do whatever they want. We live in an increasing, uh, increasingly shame culture where we have weaponized shame in order to force people into live lives that we want them to live. And we use the power of inclusion and exclusion to force people to do different things. <laughs> if we were to have a lunch after service today, and I said, hey, everybody's going to have lunch. we got the, the most delicious food in the world. And whatever table you're at, you have to stay there the whole time and talk to that person. And there's a guy in the corner with a Confederate flag T-shirt and a MAGA hat. How many people do you think will be at his table? If we truly believe that everybody has the right or the power to speak, however, and to, to believe whatever they want, then that wouldn't bother you. But we, we would use our power of inclusion and exclusion to punish that person because they're not behaving the way we want them to behave. And it's deeply entrenched in our culture. It's all the way down to kids' movies. If you watch Frozen or Moana, you'll see that the message, the, the subtle message underneath, and I love Frozen and Moana, so don't come from my inbox, all right? <laughs> I got Moana on my iTunes, so chill out. The message, though, is, listen, if your parents don't want you to do it, do it anyway. I don't care what anybody says, do it. I'm going to live my passion the way I think it's supposed to happen. And that message is starting to be baked into our children from the time they are toddlers. As if two-year-olds need more reason to be bad. <laughs> Beyond the cultural also is the spiritual. That if you were to trace our lives back to our earliest ancestors, the thing that appealed to them the most was autonomy. In the Garden of Eden, in Genesis 3, uh, it says, now the serpent was the most cunning, meaning he was wise, of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say, you can't eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat uh, the fruit from the trees in the garden, but about the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat of it or touch it or you will die. No, 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 you will not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. There's a part of verse six that I think applies to all of us. 
that when she saw autonomy, it was delightful to look at. I think there's a piece of all of us that truly crave autonomy, and it would be to our ruin every single time. Underneath that, though, I think is this lack of trust, that we can trust God with the direction of our life. That if God's plans for our lives and our plans for our lives don't line up, that we start to believe wrong things about who God is and his nature. One of the most difficult prayers for me to pray, one of the most difficult lines for me to pray in the Lord's Prayer is, your will be done. It hurts every single, every single time I say it. Your will be done, not mine. Your kingdom come, not mine. Jesus is pushing us to this place where we would live our lives and orient our lives not around our thoughts, not around our desires, not around our gut reaction, but around Scripture. And I see this in my own life, and I see this in the lives of my friends, in the way that we choose or don't choose relationships, in the way that we choose or don't choose our generosity, in the way that we hold grudges. I feel so entitled to hold a grudge every single time I have it. I feel so entitled that this person did some objectionably horrible things, and I have every right to be mad and to hold this over their head, but to forgive them? Why? Because you say so? When everything in my body feels like I'm a, I'm a loser, I'm a sucker if I forgive them, and they didn't even say sorry. What is Jesus saying that scripture for? Is it to free them? More times than not, it's to free you. Jesus does not have plans to harm us. He does not have plans to, uh, to take your life and to manipulate you, to embarrass you like my college coach did. He does have a plan to redirect you, and he uses his words.